Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Earth News Interviews. My name is Sophia, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dean. Hello, everyone. And today we have a very special guest with us, Professor Eric Clemetti. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. So we are really excited to have you on the show because you are our first uh, official science communicator on the podcast. So we're going to talk about a, a topic that is that really spans the entirety of earth sciences. And it's actually funny how I came upon um, the article that actually you published in uh, Discovery Magazine. So um, just a little bit of background, Eric is an associate professor at Denison University, and he's also the writer of the Rocky Planet blog on Discovery Magazine. And I just happened to be looking through uh, some like earth science articles and I found yours and it talks about uh, the earth sciences curriculum. So Walk us through your career so far. Where did you get to where you are today, and how did you do it? I think it's Discover Magazine. I think oh, what did I say? One. You just said, just said Discovery. I think it's Discover oh, Magazine. my bad. <laughs> Sorry. Discover Magazine. That's what it is. Perfect. Uh, yeah, Eric, if you can kind of walk us through, uh, walk us through. How did you get to where you are today? That's a that's one of these questions that's it's always hard for me to summarize in a nutshell because it's been. I don't want to say it's been a random walk, but there's a bit of a random walk aspect to how I ended up where I am because I was definitely not one of those people who has always known I wanted to be a professor or a geologist because I've had a wide variety of interests. Um, you know, there there are inklings of things that would point me in this direction. Uh, my family background. Uh, so my mother was from Colombia, so um, I used to go down to Colombia, Colombia being the country, not the, the cities. That's a lot of confusion, at least here in the States, as people think, oh, you're from South Carolina. Um, but no, Colombia, the country. So uh, I, I spent a lot of time down there as a youth, and she grew up in a city that was right near Nevada del Ruiz, which is the volcano that had the the famous mud mud flows, the lahars that killed uh, tens of thousands of people. Uh, and I remember as a youth um, going through some of the area a few years after the fact, and it definitely made an impression, but it wasn't, again, one of these impressions that said, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, my grandmother on my other side was a school teacher in Massachusetts, um, and she was also a avid rock collector. So the, I remember she had these sort of decomposing wooden crates of rocks out behind her garage that I would sift through as a kid and thought they were super cool. Um, but whatever, I was a big nerd, and I liked all the sort of sciencey things. Um, I when I went to college, uh, I went to a small liberal arts college and I really wanted to do astronomy and quickly realized that it was not for me um, because I, what I realized what I liked about astronomy was being able to look at things and was less excited about the elaborate equation-based side of the discipline. Not that I have anything against equations. It just wasn't what really got me excited. So I kind of wandered around in college uh, at first. I was a history major, uh, political science major, and finally kind of wandered into geosciences, geology, 
after taking, like I think a lot of us do, after taking an intro class and thinking it was really cool and decided to be a geo major and then uh, within a few months of that decided not to be one because I was convinced incorrectly, of course, by friends of mine in college that I wasn't the sort of person who does geology. Uh, but then cooler heads prevailed, and I was convinced by uh, other friends of mine that that was stupid. Uh, and I ended up uh, <laughs> being a geology and history double major because I really just like knowing stuff about the past. That's really cool. So yeah, that's kind of like, it gets me up to when I graduated from college and then after that point, I didn't even, my first job I had out of college was writing history. So I wasn't even, didn't even use, everyone said, oh yeah, your geology degree is going to be much more employable. But I ended up getting a job in history, uh, but quickly, again, quickly learned that I was not, it was not the life for me. So I decided to go back to grad school in, in geosciences because I wanted to uh, teach. I kind of came to that realization that that's what really got got me excited. I liked teaching. I liked thinking about either volcanoes or glaciers and ended up doing volcanoes as my uh, PhD. So mm -hmm. I'm a volcanologist. And then after uh, doing my PhD work at Oregon State, working down in South America, I ended up working at a couple other places after I got my PhD on the West Coast uh, before ending up here at Denison about 12 years ago uh, as the hard rock geologist in our department, uh, Department of Geosciences, although soon to be Department of Earth and Environmental Science uh, here at Denison. So that's kind of my my random path in a nutshell. And, and what got you really started with uh, your public outreach uh, attempts, writing and, 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 and such to, to engage with the, with the general public? So yeah, that again was not a, a planned thing. It was started back in 2008 when um, I was trying to find information, good information about an eruption of Chaiten, the eruption of Chaiten in Chile. And I was frustrated by the fact that I could not find good information interpreted by people who knew about volcanoes on the internet. And uh, again, friends can do a lot of things for you. So I had a friend at the time who was like, you know what? You're a volcanologist. Why don't you write about it? So I kind of thought, all right, whatever, I could do this. So I started writing a blog that was, uh, that one was, or my original blog was called Eruptions. So I just started writing it on WordPress um, and it kind of took off. It, um, I ended up getting uh, picked up by uh, science blogs and then wired uh, to write about volcanoes for about a decade before I started writing this new um, column for Discover uh, Rocky Planet, which is about sort of all of geology um, and earth sciences. I did not plan to do science communication. I did not train to do science communication. I just started doing it and writing. And it's gotten to the point now here at Denison, I'm not only am I faculty in this department of earth and environmental science, but I'm also a faculty in the narrative journalism program. And I teach a class wow. in science communication. So it's, it's a weird, again, a kind of opportunity knocks. Um, it's always good to answer the door when it does. 
Well, it's interesting because, I mean, science communication to me is an extension of teaching. So you said that you really wanted to teach. So I I mean, I feel like this is like a natural branching. Yeah. And that's something that a, a lot of us science communicators that are also academics, that's a, a shared trait where many times we started when we were at the point of our career when we weren't doing that much teaching. So I started the writing about volcanoes when I was a postdoc at University of California, Davis, where I really wasn't doing that much teaching. Um, so there's kind of like that itch to scratch of talking about the things that I found interesting. And that's kind of what, what launched what launched me there. And so you kind of moved beyond uh, writing about volcanoes. And so your specialty, volcanology, into writing about uh, earth sciences in general and, and what they mean, what the curriculum means, what the program means. And it's a really big issue uh, today. And that's the paper that we'll be talking about. So uh, just to kind of put a, this paper in a context, uh, before the theory of plate tectonics, there was little of the curriculum in geology that was concerned with the movement of plates. And it's not that this knowledge wasn't important, it's just that it wasn't thought of as central to the learning outcomes of a geologist. And similarly, before the 1970s environmental movement, studying human interactions with the environment was limited, although several really key findings concerning rise in CO2 linked with increased production and emissions were published, but again, they weren't widely accepted. So the point is that after plate tectonics was discovered, it became a crucial part of the earth sciences curriculum. However, despite the global climate change crisis being so critical to every part of earth sciences, and many students understanding the necessity to study climate change, renewables, natural resources, and more, enrollment number in the earth sciences seemed to be dropping. And partly this is because of the slow momentum to adapt the curriculum. And so this paper explores why this may be the case and what needs to be done to really revamp uh, the earth sciences program to represent the truly complex and interdisciplinary nature of the field. So Dean, take it away with the paper summary. All right. Thank you, Sophia. So this article that you wrote, uh, you mentioned that geology really got its start in service to the Industrial Revolution happening in England in the early 1800s. What, I'm wondering, what was training like for young geologists back then? And what was the earth sciences role in society? So if you go back that far, I mean, a lot of the times people weren't even specifically trained in geology. So because the field was was in its infancy. So a lot of it was just being trained in a broad array of physical sciences um, and then applying that knowledge to looking at at the rocks that make up the the land. And that a lot of it was in service to finding specific resources. So, you know, I, I, in the article, I talk about William Smith and his map and its roots in finding fuel for the industrial revolution. You can look at some of the even older books by like Agricola looking at mining. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what people learned about mineral types that are, were related to resources that were important. And as the discipline developed, it got more specific, both thinking about, you know, the paleontological side, which is, again, William Smith's other big legacy is the idea of um, looking, using the fossil record to understand uh, how rocks match up in different places. 
uh, and then getting into the more technical crystallography and mineralogy side. A lot of the early training was looking at those sorts of things in particular and looking at them very much as distinct and separated from the, the human human world. It's just very similar to the notion of um, classifying everything. That's what early geology was like. We wanted to classify everything and specifically figure out where things that are useful were coming from. With this focus on resource extraction, um, or at least this large component, the types of desired resources have definitely changed over the years. It's still not, it's still, you know, a focus today, and it's certainly going to be a focus in the past. Can you talk about the changes um, in uh, the types of resources and the needs for resources in the past, uh, present, and, and where we're going in the future? Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of question that can, depending on where you want to draw the line, you could go back thousands of years where it wasn't what we might classically think of geology, but people were figuring out where they could find the right sorts of rocks to extract ores to make metals like bronze. So we have always, as a as a species, been looking at rocks for the source of our raw materials for uh, a lot of things. Um, and that's evolved, is that we have both resources of necessity and utility. And then there's resources of, um, what's the right word for this? It's the resources luxury. that are luxury. There you go. So things like gold and silver, where those didn't necessarily have practical uses other than the fact that we decided as a species that they have value. Mm-hmm. So you think about the history of the United States and a lot of it uh, early on was being driven by things like gold rushes and silver mm-hmm. rushes, where people were learning some amount of geology, not necessarily degrees and and being trained in it, but learning geology in order to figure out where they can find um, things like gold. And it would have actual geologic concepts behind it, like finding gold in river deposits and why that is and understanding where they eroded from different uh, outcrops and all of that sort of stuff. So there's a much more practical aspect to it as we went from sort of gold or metals and raw materials for building to energy resources like coal and then oil and natural gas and then newer energy resources like maybe uranium and rare earth elements and and things like that that will take us forward hopefully beyond sort of the fossil fuel necessity of um, energy production. So the, the evolution has happen and it's been very rapid over the last few hundred years especially and and uh so we have like this this kind of like almost a staccato level of development like we have like you know these gold rushes as you say like all of a sudden everyone rushed to gold and all of a sudden everyone rushed to the oil depending on you know the shifts in 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 the society and the culture i wonder if you think there will be any like really quick rushes for some rare earth elements like cobalt or something for, you know, for batteries or electric vehicles or solar panels or. I mean, that's definitely something that we already see that where people are eyeing things like the Bolivian deserts for lithium salts for batteries and those sorts of rare earth. uh, Well, I guess lithium isn't a rare earth, but other rare earths used in battery technology, there has definitely been an, an increase, maybe not the same thing as, 
you don't picture that sort of mining. Mining has changed a lot, right? We don't expect that it's going to be like the the California gold rush where everybody moves out there to try to find it themselves. But corporate rushes where they're trying to find economically viable resources, locations, and for rare earths, uh, that has been happening over the last decade or so as as we have realized how many we need and how as the name implies, rare they are in different places around the planet and in an economically viable amount. So the the heart of the article is is uh, is describing this shift and a call for for more of it. This shift from these uh, extraction focus to understanding the Earth as a whole. So would it be fair to say that it's it's been through like the new discoveries over time and, and new technologies like satellites that we've become more holistic in our approach to understanding the earth. Now we, we recognize that to understand the lithosphere and its past, one must also understand the same uh, mechanisms and past of the atmosphere and the hydrosphere and the biosphere and their interactions with each other. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably a good observation. The idea that as we have found out more about the earth and how different processes can change just thinking about the changing surface of the earth is that it, you can't, it's really difficult to look at one portion of it in isolation. So as we have looked at, you know, understanding how rocks break down at the surface of the earth, we have to start thinking about, you know, how's the atmospheric dynamics change, precipitation rates changed over time. How do we think about how the biological systems like plants and uh, vegetation might have impacted erosion rates? We can start making observations about how bacteria might have some role and how that we find bacteria in places that we did not expect them to be. And then, of course, the fact that people are having a profound impact in the rates and and uh, processes that uh, the surface of the earth is changing right now as well. It's hard to to separate those things and treat them as separate entities. And that's why um, I think our field is very different than it was when people would just solely focus on sort of the rocks and minerals. Yeah, we've had a long history of economic and political interests dictating the, the focus and the range of study in earth science, in all sciences, but especially in earth science. And and so this is where you call for a more humanized earth sciences, that the impacts of those sciences and, and discoveries on people, on wildlife and environments be examined and then fed back into that directional system. Can you elaborate on, on some things that you would like to see in this shift? Well, I mean, I think what this what this boils down to talking about this that's really painting with a really broad brush. And I try not to have like too many sort of straw men arguments in this, but sometimes it's a little easier to get the idea across using that sort of methodology. But when we think about how the driving force of a lot of the the development of the earth sciences, geology, I guess, more specifically as a discipline, it really was like, we, we want this resource, we'll get this resource, we'll deal with the consequences afterwards, maybe. Um, and that, I think, has led us to the point where we are, where the discipline, to some degree, has gotten that image of not being concerned with the larger picture of the environmental and social 
and economic, maybe not economic, um, labor impacts of what we're doing. So trying to develop a curriculum that not only gets at the geology, the rocks themselves, but puts it in the, the greater context of what are the larger issues that we are serving by exploring for minerals, by understanding natural hazards, um, by looking at how we can mitigate changes in the Earth's climate, uh, both in terms of where people live, those sorts of things. Solving problems by looking at what are the human impacts rather than merely just thinking of finding the resource or solving questions that are truly just independent of the human side of the equation. Because I think that's what makes it hard for people to, to see that the discipline is not just a, a resource extraction discipline. Mm-hmm. What I'm really interested in, and this, this may be an obvious question, but the reason I ask is because you mentioned that you know, you started in, in poli-sci and then history and then moved on to geology. So you kind of have uh, a, a background in a, in a science or in a, in a field that's different from earth science. And what I want to ask is, what differentiates earth science as a discipline from some of the other sciences uh, like chemistry, uh, medicine, physics? Like, Why is earth science so um, sensitive to societal and, and cultural changes? What makes it so so volatile in a sense? Because I, at least as far as I know, I don't know of many disciplines that have had this profound shift in curriculum, as far as I know. So the best comparison kind of on that front would be thinking about how biology has shifted. And it wasn't necessarily a question of sort of the how in in the geosciences we have sort of this image rehabilitation that needs to happen because of the the resource side of things, but rather the way that they biology was approached, where prior to sort of the maybe the last twenty years it was very much like a uh, a classification discipline, where that's what you learned as a biologist is how do you classify organisms and. Um, that was the the framework that they built on. And then there is this large shift, this reorganization of, of biology curriculums to look at sort of systems. And it, it's really when you incorporate ecology into it. And again, that was a change that happened because it was it was realized that in biology, you had all these other networks that play into how the biological systems work. And that's, I think, the same thing that we see right now in the earth sciences is that the realization that the earth sciences are probably, I'd say, the most integrative of pretty much any of the STEM fields. We need to bring in information of so many different other fields to then think about and answer the problems that we have. It is a, a, a sea change to the point where the way that we approach the, the curriculum needs uh, a serious examination. Mm-hmm. In in our own uh, university, University of Toronto, we, we did a little bit of digging and found that the, the big change started in 1990 uh, when the university decided they wanted to move into the environmental field. So 
uh, professors with more traditional fields left and retired and were replaced with more uh, environmental area people. At the same time, like NSERC grants uh, were cut that were tied to like the Ontario Geological Survey and was moved out for political reasons. Uh, and so the, the, the shift in the faculty, the, 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 the focuses of the faculty just broadened uh, significantly since then. And it was actually, I think, 2012 that they renamed it from Geology Department to the Earth Sciences Department at, at our university. But you mentioned a, a university that actually got closed uh, recently, or not, not university, a, a geology department got closed recently. And uh, one of the things that the, the person wrote for about that is that they wish they had, had shifted away from this very uh, geology focused element in their department. Uh, can, you, can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, this is, in one sense, this is a a change in our field in the earth sciences that is both immediate and has been coming for a long time. Because you're right, you're pointing out the idea that there's been, as we have expanded environmental science at the university level, a lot of the times it sort of would eat into the geologic sciences and the geology. And that to some degree, is is natural because environmental science and earth sciences really overlap. They have slightly different focuses where one could argue that the earth sciences are much more looking at the geosphere. You are not integrating people as extensively into the earth sciences as environmental science where you are really looking directly at that, that interaction between the earth processes and human processes. Now, you could go online and find about a few dozen different definitions of what environmental science is relative to earth science. But that's kind of at least my take on, on how you split them. What I, at least my observation is that when departments, geology departments are resistant to trying to bring in that integration, that's when they start to, I think, have found less traction with the, the current student population because it is it begins to feel like it is a you know no pun intended here a fossilized discipline that is stuck um doing things as it has done for you know you look at the a classical geology curriculum where you might take mineralogy structural geology sedimentology stratigraphy um, the pillars of the discipline that's been you can look back 50, 75 years and universities were teaching geology in that same way. So this is not to say that one needs to always go about trying to whatever, be trendy, but there is the reality of trying to match what you're doing in your discipline with the advancement in the discipline globally and outside of the university setting and thinking about where students who get your degree end up working in the long run. And there's a lot fewer people who end up going directly into oil or mining, which is what a lot of these classical geoscience programs really were training people for. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like, so like you mentioned, the enrollment of students in geology and related fields in the past kind of ebbed and flowed with the oil and gas market. 
um, even though this market hasn't done as well as it has in the past today and is forecasted to drop more as we move toward renewable energy sources and resources, there hasn't really been an equal jump in enrollment in response to the opportunities in the renewable resources sector, which require mining of rare earth elements um, and uh, metals like lithium and cobalt to build solar panels, power electric cars, and so on. So to me, this looks like a general aversion to the mining industry altogether, despite the fact that we'll need it in the future for a greener economy. So do you think that a general public tendency to dislike and mistrust the mining industry is behind the kind of dip in enrollment, or are there other reasons why there hasn't been a similar jump in enrollment uh, in response to uh, the opportunities that green mining can bring? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the million-dollar question, because there's there's a lot of directions that one can go to think about why we have seen in the in the states and in in England or in the United Kingdom especially drops in enrollments in geology programs you know one of them is that is that i think there is qualitatively talking to students talking to people about why they might have chosen the field and why not there might be some of that idea that it is a field so strongly associated with mining and extraction that people just don't want to do it because that's perceived as the source of a lot of our environmental and climate-related problems. I think the field suffers from the fact that it is um, not has not diversified to reflect the global population. It's a very white field. Um, you know, I discovered in the recent past that I'm one of like a few hundred Latino PhDs out of tens of thousands of PhDs granted over the last 30 years. Uh, it's just a field that is is lacking in a reflection of the student body today. So people don't see faculty who they can relate to very easily. They kind of look at a lot of geology departments and the perception is it's a bunch of uh, white guys with beards. Um, I think that the other thing is that it's just the earth sciences have not done a great job of marketing themselves to the greater public. It's a lot of the times um, you look at science communication and it's the physicists and biologists who do that very well, or at least get the attention and not very much from uh, the earth sciences. So there's a lot of, I think, strings that are leading back to this, this problem of why the earth sciences, although you're entirely right. The problems that we are trying to solve, many of them have an earth science solution. Um, it is not, it's, you know, people are not attracted to the field as much because I don't think that they realize that those problems are going to be solved in many ways by earth science, earth scientists. So it, it seems like overall there's, there's a combination of factors that are leading to low enrollment, but the main one is maybe this like kind of aversion to uh, this as you said before, fossilized field. So it's very kind of old school, has, is looked at as a field that is kind of stuck in the past. The The key there is that it's both in terms of the the skills and curriculum, but also the, the diversity and inclusivity within the field itself is that it just, it does not in many places reflect uh, modern society or the modern needs of the students who are coming through universities right now. Right. And like moving to, to some actionable items to, 
to change the curriculum, it doesn't seem like you're proposing to get rid of courses whose learning income, whose learning outcomes are related to the oil and gas industry, like courses like about sediments and stratigraphy, basins, mineral deposits, and so on. Can you explain why uh, these courses are important for earth scientists as a whole and not just those that are going into the mineral and resource sectors or perhaps argue the other side? I, I just I, I figured that you wanted to integrate the sciences rather than get rid of certain courses. Yeah, so I'm totally not advocating that we get rid of what we'd consider the the pillars of geology. A lot of these uh, subdisciplines that might not seem as applicable you know, I am. I work in a field, being a volcanologist and a petrologist, that uh, has a lot of pieces of its subdiscipline that are not seen as important anymore. So most of the time, people who get earth science degrees don't spend an entire semester on crystallography like you might have done a hundred years ago, um, and that's probably a, a good thing um, that you don't need to spend. A hundred or a hundred years. You don't need. To, you especially don't need to spend a hundred years on crystallography. You don't need to spend a full academic year on crystallography either. You should understand the importance of crystal systems in defining the properties of minerals, but you don't need to have that same level of in-depth knowledge based on on what you end up doing with that knowledge in the future. The same can be said for a lot of these other. Um, things is that in in uh, sedimentology and stratigraphy, it might not be used to find that oil play that you might have 50 years ago, but rather understanding how Earth's climate has changed over time is really deeply wedded with sedimentology and being able to read that record back based on those deposits. So understanding how those uh, sedimentological systems operate ends up being really important. Structural geology is the same sort of thing. To understand how we can uh, understand a lot of the different earth hazards, earthquakes and things like that, Under understanding of how the earth deforms and the, the how it responds to, to um, stresses becomes really important. So I think it's less that we need to jettison large chunks of what we'd consider a classical geologic curriculum, but rather recast it and take the pieces that are going to be applicable to what we'd consider a modern earth scientist. So you mentioned that you majored in history for a while. Um, I actually, one of my minors is the history and philosophy of science. And so that really intrigued me. I'm wondering if you think that your training in history has given you any special um, edge or any uh, particular uh, useful perspectives in your study of the earth sciences? I don't know if it's given me any sort of edge as much as just it has allowed me to ha have the skills to jump back and forth between different timescales. Because, you know, in, in the earth sciences, we're definitely thinking things on typically longer than human timescales. And history, in many ways, is we're looking at things much very much on a human time scale. And that sort of has allowed me to make some some of these connections in how we can link geologic processes and human processes together um, for you know, hazards, I guess is a good example, is thinking about how we can um, better prepare people for geologic hazards and thinking about how people 
perceive timescales where a geologist might say, oh, you know, this volcano erupts every once in a while. And that to the geologist means every 400 years, but to the average person that might mean every five years. So being able to jump back and forth like that has definitely been helpful. And it's also just one of these things where being able to extract that information out of the historic record that can then be utilized in the geologic knowledge has has been really useful. Um, again, like I said, I just like thinking about the past and trying to figure out how the past works. And geology, history, archaeology, all of these things kind of are similar studies, but just done in, in different ways. Um, but they they have a lot of overlap between between all of those sorts of fields. What do you think are the repercussions of low enrollment in earth sciences? Like if this trend continues, can you see the transition from non-renewables to renewables being hindered by the absence of like a young workforce that will have the needed experience and ambition to lead the the change? I mean, that's a tough one because we already see that there's a lot of institutions out there that are cutting their geology programs because of low enrollment. And we haven't reached the point where it will lead to a, a lack of a workforce in the future, but it definitely could. And that we would have people who require much more training after the fact, after they graduate. I think that, that we're it's going to be a problem uh, if we just continue to not try to address the enrollment issue. Because as more of these departments get cut, they're not going to come back very easily. So it's one of these things where it's it's lost for good. Um, and without those departments existing, we want to have lots of people with diverse training going into these jobs that are going to be needed. I think the the green mining is one aspect, but it's also going to be hazard mitigation due to climate change that is going to need a lot of people going into it and those sorts of environmental uh, environmental engineering and those sorts of fields that we're just not going to have enough people trained for it. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Uh, so let's, uh, let's switch to hitting him with the big question, Sophia. My question for you, if you could solve one scientific mystery that interests you, whether it's in earth sciences or whatever field or uh, humanities or, or whatever, what would it be? One? Wow. That's a hard one. Just one. <laughs> I know. We save our hardest questions for last. Yeah, no, I mean, because this is hard because, I, you know, being the sort of person that I am and being a faculty member at a liberal arts college where I can teach class, you know, I teach a lot of different sorts of classes. I say I'm a hard rock geologist, but I also teach class here on geoarchaeology. I mentioned I teach a class in science communication. Um, you know, I'm currently teaching a class on planetary geology. There's just like so many things that I find interesting and fascinating trying to pick one thing to solve is tough. You know, my research is looking at what happens underneath volcanoes during the periods that lead up to an eruption. So it's not really answering a question as much as it'd be really great if as a field, as a field of earth scientists, we could come up with ways to do, I don't, for lack of a better word, missions, kind of like the astronomers have been able to, physicists have been able to do to send billion dollar robots out into space to explore space. If we could figure out ways to do that, but within the earth, can we figure out ways to have missions 
or have the ability to explore the area underneath a vault, like five kilometers underneath a volcano during the time leading up to an eruption to see what's happening in there. Um, that would be super cool. I don't know how you do it, um, but if it's sort of like a, a question of anything that could be solved, that would be a great thing to solve is how can we explore the inside of the earth kind of as effectively as we've been able to s- explore off the earth? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good answer to that question. I'd also like to know that. And uh, for the second big question of the episode, what in today's world brings you a little sense of optimism? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, this is <laughs> these days, a particularly tough question. It's always these days. <laughs> Attached to this question. Yeah. And these days, you know, uh, especially here in the States, it's, it's been a rough maybe past five years, especially. Um, but I like to think this is where kind of maybe my like, like of history kicks in is that, you know, humans, we've, we've done, we've been, lived through a lot as a species. And if we have the ability and awareness to continue to adapt to new situations, we will continue to survive. And I think we have that innate ability within us to do it. Um, and sometimes it seems really bleak. Uh, and that's just the nature of history is that sometimes things are really, times are positive and sometimes they're much less positive, but it ebbs and flows. So keeping that in mind always lets me realize that although things kind of seem like they're terrible, that terribleness rarely lasts forever. So I don't know, is that optimistic enough? I don't, sometimes I say that and I think it sounds less optimistic than almost anything I could have said, but... <laughs> You know, badness doesn't last forever. I mean, I remember this saying, it's like hope is the last thing that dies. So it's always good to, you know, see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of something that has always helped me get through is just the idea that we have rarely had an event so far for humans, knock on wood at this point, that we are, that has really collapsed everything extremely rapidly. And I tend to think like the only thing that's going to do that is an asteroid impact on the scale of the KT boundary, something to that level. Nuclear war might be another one of that level. But I I have faith in the resilience of people on the whole. It just sometimes feels hard to, to tell people that because we're kind of a cynical bunch these days. Well, and, and to bring us more cynicism, Here's Dean's quote of the episode. (laughs) I feel bad about this now. All right. I dusted off Isaac Asimov again for another episode. Here's his quote. The saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. (laughs) I thought it was quite applicable to this, uh, to the the, the issues we've had in the past with with earth science. Um, But also, you know, I mean, it's, it's cause for hope for the future in a way. Oh, I I would say so, but it's I mean that's that's a truism. Well, that uh, ends our episode for today. Thank you so much, Eric, for being with us, uh, sharing the article with us, kind of going in depth to some of the things, some of the actionable items that that we can kind of food for thought um, that that we can have for the future. And yeah, thank you so much. Oh yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you to our listeners as well. We hope to have you tune in for another episode of Earth News Interviews next time. Until then, leave no rock unturned.
Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.